So let me encourage you to do this. Stay connected to those folks, and after service, take them out to our cafe and have coffee. Wait a minute, we don't have a cafe. So figure out something else, but spend some time together. About, actually, it was 56 days ago, Pam and I had the opportunity to meet somebody new like you did this morning. We have some friends in town who invited us over to their house, and they had some friends visiting them from West Africa. The couple that we're visiting, he, the man of the couple, is known for his apostolic ministry in several West African countries. By apostolic, he has this fathering influence over churches and regions and cities and villages. In addition to that, very often when he prays, miracles happen. And when he speaks to people, he speaks what I would call in a prophetic way, which means that the giftings that are known in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 actually are revealed in him, and, and so he can talk to a person and begin to talk to them about issues in their life that he should not know, but have been revealed to him as he talks to the person, and then give them encouragement and wisdom and direction and guidance. So we sat down with them and began to talk with them, and, and Pam and I seized the opportunity to have our friends and this couple from West Africa to pray over us. And so they began to pray, and honestly, as they began to pray, they began to talk about things in our life that they did not know beforehand, but somehow God revealed to them, and it was an encouragement to us. And then this transpired. This is where I want to take us this morning. Just before we began praying, he asked about you. And so I told him about the people I love and, and your abilities and the exciting things that we're doing and we're facing and the challenges we face. And then I told him about the city, and I told him about this region and about Erie, and I, I used this wording. I said, Erie can be very difficult. And what I had in mind when I said that was that we all have to face some spiritual powers in this city that can make life difficult for us. There's a spirit of religion in this community which tempts us to show up on a Sunday morning and go through a routine but not follow in an intimate obedience to God the rest of the week. And it's very tempting. There's a spirit of of a sexuality in this community that is difficult to deal with and, and that and another word I could use for it is lust and, and as a result of the way that we approach sexuality in this community we have one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases in this region right here in this city there's a spirit of anger now, when you live here long enough, you forget it's there, but when I first came here, Pam and I noticed how intense and angry people were, and then we'd forgotten about it and probably were part of the problem. Who knows? But, but we had some friends that just moved here, and they said to us, is everybody so angry all the time? I said, yes! <laughs> no, I don't know. There's also this spirit that was labeled for me when I was talking to one of our leaders in the community. And I said to him, can you give me just a one-word answer for how you think Erie feels about itself? And he said, hopeless. That there's a spirit in the city that nothing good's going to happen, and when things start to happen good, something worse happens. And tied to that is a spirit of criticism that we know nothing good is going to happen, but if you try to do something to make it better and it's not the way I'd like it to be done, I'll criticize you and, and stop you from accomplishing it. So that's what I had in mind when I said that it can be difficult. And some of you are nodding your head, yes, and you're angry about it. <laughs> so they began to pray, and, and they stopped halfway through the prayer, and they looked at me, and they said, when you said that Erie is a difficult place, it stung in our spirit. And I thought, well, it should. And I thought, they're going to commiserate with me and just make me feel good about this and, and, and sympathize. And instead they said, you should not say that. And then they went on to tell me this. The glory of God fills the earth. That's what the scriptures say. Therefore, the glory of God fills Erie. Therefore, you should be looking for his glory. It's an eerie. I said, thank you, sir. May I have another? Just, just. It tied so directly into what we as a staff and, and leadership had been talking about 
where God was taking us in these next years because we said, where, do we, where are we headed as Erie First Assembly? And, and so last week, I shared it to, for you in encapsulated form as we began our study of the book of Colossians. And so if you weren't here last Sunday, I, I, I urge you, please, go online and, and download the podcast or stop by and get a, a CD from the media desk because it explains it. In fact, it's explained partially in your service folder, and you can read it later on today. There's, there's a piece in there that tells you about where we're headed, and, and here's where we're going. In spite of all the spiritual impact that may seem negative, here's what we believe Jesus and God wants us to do, and it's simply this. Reveal Jesus because he's here. His glory is in this place. And we have three specific steps that the book of Colossians makes very clear to us that we're going to take three acts. And those steps, those, those steps, those actions we need to take are first these. Our first one is this, love Jesus. And the way we're going to do that is, is that if we love Jesus, we believe that we can trust him. And if we can trust him, then we can give him accessibility to our entire person. That we're going to open ourselves up to him, and, and as we're going to read the scriptures and let the scriptures read us, so it tells us who we are. And we're going to become more like Jesus designed us to be, because he said, if you love me, you'll do what I've asked you to do. If you'll trust me, you'll do that. So we're going to focus on loving Jesus. We're going to focus on loving people, especially the folks that are around us in our community of faith. And for a good part of last year, about 50 leaders gathered together and said, where should all our ministries point? We don't want everybody going whatever direction. We need to have a focused view, a laser, if you will, approach to this, a target. And after all that work, it boiled down to this in simplicity. We have got to be a group of people who serve because Jesus said, if you serve, I can bless you. Serve. And so we have said that that we're going to serve everybody or everyone, every day, everywhere. That's our goal. And thirdly, we're going to love community. And those are the people that are really outside our our networking of believers in Christ. And we're going to do this. We're going to invest and invite. We're going to invest in our friends because that's what we're supposed to do. Friendship is not a means to an end. It is what Jesus designed for us to do, to be friends. And so we're going to be friends. We're going to invest by, in the process of friendship, asking this question, tell me your story. Because if I know your story, I can love you more. Let me be involved in your story. And then how can I serve you? And as you reveal your story, I can, I can realize how I can serve you. And in serving, we reveal Jesus. Invest and invite. Invite to those places where you worship. And worship is more than just a Sunday morning. But first of all, I want to say invite them here. Because when we gather together, there is this presence of God that heals, that, that gives hope, that, that changes people on the inside. And your friends need to know that, and you need to bring them with you. Invite them to your small groups. Invite them when you go bowling. Invite them when you go down to work at the city mission. Invite them to be part of where you are and God is there. Invite them. And so for the remainder of January, I want us to focus on loving Jesus. And so the question I simply ask me and I ask you is, how do we do that? How do we love Jesus? In fact, the question of how brings me to the question that really answers how, and it is why. Why should we love Jesus? And then in the days to come, we will talk about how. Why should we love Jesus? First of all, because Jesus created and controls our world. Jesus created and controls our world. So I want you to check out this video in just a moment. It's of a choir. They're called Perpetuum Jazzle. And they're getting ready to sing this song, Rains in Africa. But to do that, they set it up by actually creating their own thunderstorm in a very unique way. Check this out.
know what's so nice about that is that kind of storm is pretty harmless. We create our own, and as we create our own, there's, there's not much to fear. About three or four years ago, my daughter Christy and I were hiking up a mountain outside of Estes Park in Colorado. It took us about three hours to get to the peak, and as we got to the peak, and, and really exhausted, it was really strenuous, and suddenly a thunderstorm came sweeping in. Huge thunderclaps, lightning flashing around us, and we're atop of this mountain, and, and hail starting to, to pelt us, and so we realized the danger we're in, because they warn you, if you get up in a thunderstorm, get out of there quick. So I want to tell you that we made it down in less than three hours. And when we got down, we, we really laughed about it, but it scared us because of all the, the thunder, the lightning, and, and the, the pelting of, of the hail and, and, and being knocked around by that. It was amazing. See, real power scares us. It's what we dealt with last week as we talked about this first century grouping of people in a city called Colossae. And they were concerned about the fact that there was some really evil power that was scaring them. Now, they believed that there was a benevolent God, and they believed that the world was created by a divine being, but because there's so much evil in it, they decided that it couldn't be a benevolent God who had created this earth. And so what they decided, and I demonstrated this for you last, last week, is that they started with one, one being, one perfect holy being who is absolutely perfect, who we want to know because life would be perfect. And coming from him was an emanation, and from that emanation was another emanation, and another emanation, and another emanation, and eon is what they called it, and it went all the way down to the last emanation, and that emanation created the earth. And each successive emanation coming from this perfect God was less in perfection and less in divinity. Till we got down to this one. This one who created our earth had a lot of imperfections, but he's still divinity. So now, to straighten out our lives, what we've got to do is work our way back to that perfection. And what we've got to do is start with the one that's closest to the earth. We need to placate and worship each one of those and understand the distinct knowledge that they have and please them so we can move from one to the other to the other to the other. These beings who live in the stars and the planets and whatever means by mysticism, by astrology, by secret knowledge, we'll make our way back to this one being and therefore perfect our lives and find salvation for our living. So we work our way back. So he said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to start with this one that created the earth, and they said his name is Jesus. Lesser in divinity and lesser in perfection, and that's why the earth is so messed up. But you start with this one called Jesus and work your way back. Now, there's this follower of Jesus in the first century. His name is Paul. His original name was Saul of Tarsus. He is a follower of Jesus. He writes to his friends in Colossae, and he says, they who have told you what they've told you, their philosophy of this knowledge and all, he said, they're halfway right. The earth was created by Jesus. And they told you to start there and keep going. I'm telling you to start there and stay there because there's nothing in between. And so he says this to them, one of the greatest verses and passages of Scripture you'll ever hear about Jesus Christ. And Paul writes it in Colossians, the first chapter, the 15th verse. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. All things were created. How much? All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He says you start with Jesus because any other power you think is there is just sound. For Jesus is the power. Now, the Colossians lived in a world where they understood power. Because if they had a problem, if, if the chariot broke down or if the crops didn't grow right or if the husband ran off with the neighbor's wife, they didn't blame each other. They blamed the supernatural culprits involved, those powers. They blamed Mars. They blamed Apollo. They, they blamed Pan, Athena, 
Aphrodite, demonic powers. And we do the same. I don't know if you saw it on ABC's website, but they're telling us that they've done a survey, and that survey says that no matter who we are, that when, when things get tough, one-third to two-thirds of Americans today blame God. It's God's fault for what I'm facing. God let this happen. And so we do the same thing, only we've just isolated this as Jehovah God or whatever being you want. We also blame. So it is this moment that Paul puts a stake in the ground. This is where Paul brings a defining moment. Popular culture says that spiritual forces are against us and there's nothing we can do to stop them. And Paul responds by saying simply this, Jesus has supremacy over everything because of these reasons. Number one, because he is God. He is not some shadow, shadowy replication. Uh, he is not some imperfect caricature. He is the image of the invisible God. What do you see? Yourself. What do you see? You. What do you see? Me. Me. What do you see? Michael. Michael. (laughs) What do you see? You see yourself. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image actually is, he is the mirror. He is the mirror of the invisible God, meaning this, that the very nature and the very being of who God is is reflected in Jesus because he is God. That is why Paul the Apostle to the church in Corinth said this, that we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When you see Jesus, who do you see? Tell me again, who do you see? God can be nothing more than what Jesus showed us that he was. Jesus is the exact replication or duplication or actually the essence, the mirror image of who God is on earth. And because of that, he holds priority. Some of you may relate to this, but when I was much younger living at home, there were moments that in my insanity I disobeyed my father. My dad was a disciplinarian. He didn't hesitate to use the switch. He would spank. One of the things he would do is if I disobeyed him, he would come to me and say, Jack, and we'd go through the whole thing, and you know you're wrong. (laughs) Yes, I know I'm wrong. What did you do? You know what I did. And then he would say this. He'd say, tonight, you're going away from the table, and you get no dinner and I wouldn't get anything to eat. You say, can he do that? Yeah, because it's his food. He owns the stuff. He can tell me, you can't eat that. And he's bigger than me, so I can't fight him for it. Then he would say this, now go to your room, and you can only stay in your room the whole evening. (gasps) Just in my room by myself? You've got to go there. Can he do that? Yes, because he owns all the rooms. And he can tell you which room to go to, and he's bigger than I am, so I can't stop it. I can't fight against it. i got to go there. When Paul said that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, us in our limited knowledge of culture, thinks, we think, well, that means he was born, he was, that God was actually created. No, 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 he wasn't. Firstborn is actually a cultural term, meaning this, priority in time and supremacy in rank. That he showed up first, he was here and created all of this, and therefore holds the highest highest ranks so that when we come to him, we must understand whether we're created spirits or created human beings, he has it all. He was here first, he owns it all, and he has all the power. There were just a short distance from Colossae is the town of Ephesus. That's where Paul the Apostle went and revealed Jesus to them and then sent Epaphras from Ephesus to Colossae to tell them about Jesus and reveal Jesus to them. Amazing thing happened at Ephesus. When Paul and his entourage showed up, 
a bunch of people saw Jesus by their, by their preaching and what they talked about and the miracles that took place, and so they put their faith in Jesus and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a population there of people very involved in sorcery. And so Paul would go through the town, and these people involved in sorcery many times would be demonized, and so he would cast the demons out. Well, there were a group of people who were trying to do that who were not followers of Jesus, and there were seven of those that were brothers, seven of them who were the sons of the high priest in Ephesus. His name was Sceva. So one day, these seven brothers are trying to remove a spirit from a person, and so they try to cast out the spirit, and the spirit responds back. And the spirit says this, Jesus I know. Paul the Apostle, I know, because they were saying this, I cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul serves. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who do you think you are? At that moment, that one man, full of the Spirit, attacked all seven, stripped them naked, and beat them up. As a result, the city became fearful, because here's what they figured out that when it comes to these spiritual powers, there was only one power that seemed to be able to control them, and that was Jesus. And that there was no other power mightier than they were. Therefore, they needed to trust Jesus. And that day, there was such an amazing amount of people who brought all their material they used for sorcery, they burned it up, and they said it would equal about 30,000 drachma. A drachma, or 50,000 drachma, a drachma is a day's wage. That's how many people brought their stuff. It was that valuable. Because Jesus controls everything and every spirit must bow to him. That is because he is the focus of creation. Some of your translations say by him. The original wording is it's in him. And let me describe in him for you. Celeste, I'm going to bother you for a moment over here. And, and you have a beautiful daughter over here named Chloe. And, and Chloe is just a beautiful young lady. Did you get her just this way? Is this how she showed up? What, well, I mean, when she first came into your life? Oh, no. She just didn't come that way? Where would she come from? <laughs> We're going to be very delicate here, so hang on. She came from your womb. Where was she formed? In your womb. The word in is a locative verb meaning location. It is a sphere. In Jesus, everything was created. When creation took place, it was in, if you will, the womb of Jesus. It was formed there. When the words came out, let there be light, it was in the presence and in the womb, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Nothing got created unless it got created within him. Now, she was formed there. How'd she get out here? You gave birth. You were the channel. You were the intermediary. You were the one who brought it forth. In him and by him, he is the one who then created the world. It was formed in him, and he spoke it out, and here it is, Jesus Christ. And the purpose for this is was because the creation of everything you see, including the spirits that bug you, they were created by him. They were created for him. In him, by him, and for him. Let me describe that to you. Many of you know that have been here for a while that I have an uncle, Robbie Reisner, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for seven and a half years. For most of that time, he was the commanding officer of the POWs at the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. Went through horrendous torture, and God brought him back out to the other side, through it all. When he was shot down, and they captured him, they knew who he was because the Time magazine had just come out with him representing the fighting men of Vietnam. They knew who they had, Colonel Robinson Reisner. What they did to him is that they stripped him, and they did this with all the POWs, they stripped him of all that symbolized who he had been. 
They took his clothes from him. They took his, his dog tags. They took his ID. They took his pictures of his family. They took whatever he was carrying so that he had absolutely nothing. And then they sat him down in front of the commanding officer of that camp in a posture of submission to that commanding officer. Everything was stripped away. And in what he was saying by that action to my uncle was, you have nothing except me. Everything flows and comes to me. This word for him is the same thing. It means this. That the day will come with everything we hold on to that we think is valuable and every spiritual force that holds on to whatever it has that thinks it's valuable. The time will come when all of it will be stripped away and we will, as it were, be naked before Jesus Christ and it's just us and him. Everything flows to him. That is why Paul says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day will come when we will understand and everyone will understand that Jesus has control. My uncle understood that. When he went into the prisoner of war camp, he had already been following Jesus. And he knew that he had to trust him to be able to get through all of this. So most every day, when he was free to, to move around, he would exercise and pray and would try to remember the scriptures that he had learned as a child. There was at one point that they were, they were torturing him and then they took him into a cell. They put him in a concrete, on a concrete bunk. They put his feet in stocks made for Vietnamese, which then when they shut them, closed down inside his skin down to his bone. They put him in shackles behind his back so that if he laid down, it would hurt his arms if he leaned forward, it would hurt his back. And in the midst of all of this, he had a severe kidney infection that they would not treat. So hour after hour, he's suffering through this. And finally, and he's a tough man. If you knew my uncle, he's just incredible at psychological warfare. He's just one of the toughest men I know. So when it came to this, I knew that it had to be extreme. He said, Jesus, you know that you promised that you would never put me through more than I could handle. I've got to have some relief. He looked over to the, concrete, uh, to the concrete that he was laying on, and there was a little notch in there. So he reached over with the, the shackles and cuffs, and he, he latched it and pulled, and the shackles came off. He reached over to the padlock that had him locked in those stocks. He pulled, and it came off. He got himself out. He relieved himself. He exercised. He tried to, to comfort himself as much as he could. He heard the guard coming. He went back in and put himself the way he was before, securely shackled, because they came in and checked everything. It was secure. Hours later, he said, Jesus, I'm there again. You've got to help me. And the same exact thing happened. Shackles came off. Padlock came off. And he was able to find some comfort. Why? Because Jesus controls everything. We will come to the place, all of us, that we will admit that he is in control. All things visible, invisible. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. We will understand that Jesus is the principal cohesion of this earth that makes it not a chaos, but a cosmos. And that even the spiritual powers around us were created for that end. But somehow they went rogue. How does that happen? When we take our trust, when we take anything that we have that Jesus has given us, and we take our trust and we put it in another power other than Jesus, whether we are a created angelic being or created human being, when we take what God has given us and we turn it over to another power other than Jesus, that power takes control. We do it now. We take this wonderful gift of sexuality and if we give it over to lust or if you will, the God of Aphrodite, something happens. If we take the possessions that God has given us and we become greedy with them and we give them over to mammon is what the scripture calls it. Something adverse happens. Bishop N.T. Wright describes it perfectly this way. When the powers take over, human beings get crushed. And when you see human beings getting crushed, it's usually because there are powers at work that humans are powerless to stop. So what happens when we rise up to, to face those powers? What happens when you have an addiction and you're trying to stop it? 
You have an eating disorder and you're trying to halt it. You've, you've got an addiction to, to cocaine and you're trying to get off that thing. You, you have this anger that dwells up and you're trying to get over it. You're, you're drawn to womanizing or pornography and you're trying to get over it. Jesus rose up against those powers and you say, look at him. They arrested him. They beat him. They stripped him. They humiliated him. And then they executed him. See what happens when you rise up against these powers, you say. Look what happens. They rise up in vengeance. They, they're saying to us, Nobody stands up to us like that and gets away with it. You can't beat the system, and we agree with it. We can't beat it, so we'll just have to, to, try to try to live our way through and negotiate through the problem. So what do we do with this greed or this lust, this anger, this abuse, this oppression, this demonizing, this... this what, what do we do with that stuff? We can't stop it. Well, if Jesus created the world and controls it, then understand that Jesus also recreates and rescues our world. When Jesus showed up to this world that that had been so messed up with evil forces, and he declared the kingdom of God is here, I'm here to take over, they killed him. But understand that their greatest weapon, which was death, that greatest weapon, they exhausted themselves in their effort to destroy him. That weapon of death, their greatest weapon, understand it, they had no weapon more powerful than death, was still not out of Jesus' control. Here's what Paul says. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The firstborn. He was the first one to rise from the dead and never die again. And how did he do that? Later on in this letter, we'll see it again. Paul says this in Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. N.T. Wright says this, the cross was not the defeat of Christ at the hands of the powers. It was the defeat of the powers at the hands, yes, the bleeding hands of Christ. See, those powers, they're defeated, but they're not annihilated. They're still around. But here's what he did to them. The word defeat actually means to strip. He took them and stripped them of all they had and their weaponry. They are as you were, as, as, as it could be that they're naked. They're, they're walking through the, the, behind Jesus in nakedness because the triumph means, now catch this, the triumph means a parade of loud singing and celebration. That Jesus took these powers, he stripped them of their power, stripped them of, of their weaponry, and he said, follow me, and now he's walking through the heavenlies declaring that, look at these, I've stripped them, now sing and praise and adore, and we're going to celebrate. That's what I've done. But see, we don't know that. We don't act like that's the case. Uncontested, they still strike at Christ's body. That's you and me. Should we give up? What do we do with that? He said, I want you to understand that Jesus is the beginning. Beginning means there's more to come. There are more coming who have this power. There are more coming who will overcome the powers that are there in front of them. There are more coming who will learn that they have within them built already the ability to overcome the influences that are trying to drive them to their death. Will Jesus do that for me? To understand this, think in your mind, what is the greatest, the greatest power that is debilitating you right now? What is the thing that's, that's just wiping you out? Is it fear? Is it your anxiety? Is it the, the lack of finances? Is it, is it some habit? What, what is that thing, that, that spirit of something that's... that's Ripping you apart. Whatever that thing is, 
its greatest weapon has already been overcome by Jesus. In fact, I just want you to say out loud as you think about it, just say, Jesus has overcome it. Say that. See, the spoken word needs to be spoken this way because it needs to enter into the atmosphere around you. Those words change things. I mean, that's how Jesus didn't think in his mind, let there be light. He said it. So you've got to speak that and say, the greatest weapon that this enemy has, Jesus has overcome it. So what does he do for me? Well, he said, I'm the beginning, so I'm going to bring some people along. And the way that I'm going to do that is the fact that I am the fullness. And we read that. I am the fullness of God, which means everything that God wants for you, everything, every action, every, every dream, every, every idea that God has for you, Jesus has brought to you because he's the fullness of him. And he's going to bring it to you through reconciliation. That's the word that he used, which means to change so that there is no enmity between you and someone else. That this distance between us and God that keeps us from, from grabbing hold of this power that overcomes everything, that stuff's got to go. So, Jesus comes to this earth. He takes all our sins, the enmity between us and God, and puts him on himself so that Jesus hanging on the cross says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Separated. He took it for us. And in exchange, he gives us reconciliation. He gives us relationship with God that he had with the Father because he was sinless. And by the blood of Jesus, we have peace. As a result, Paul says this happens to us. Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. He's the head over what? Every, I catch it, every, what's bugging you right now, every, that thing is covered by Jesus, every ruler and authority. It is all covered. Repeat this after me. Possessing him, we possess all. Possessing him, we possess all. when we put our lives into Jesus' hands, everything that he has an authority over those spiritual forces is now transmitted to us. And we can walk in that power. In fact, when they asked Jesus, what does God want us to do to make him happy? Jesus responded one thing. Believe on the one God sent. Trust me. Trust me with all that you have and who you are and I will give you the ability. Trust me. Not Apollo or Pan or Mars. Not some, some emanation coming down from a perfect God. Not your checking account. Not your, 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 your retirement. None of that stuff. And, and, and the people that surround you. That's not the issue. The issue is he said, you've got to trust me. You see, by trusting him, He said, that's how you love me. So Paul goes on to say this in Colossians 1, verse 22. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are what? Holy and and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue. Now catch this, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Don't do it. So how do we love him? Because we we, we should. Let me give you some daily activities that we all should do in loving him that will set us free. Daily expressions of loving Jesus begin with this. Confess that we stand in Jesus. See, I'm not perfect. I got grumpy this week. It happened. Pam will tell you. Because she said to me, you're grumpy this week. Those were the words. I said to her, so are you. So. 
We all got the stuff. We all, we, and so we say, how can we, how can we just say to God, we want the stuff to help us overcome our powers because we're just imperfect. He said, here's what I did for you. When you put your faith in Jesus, I took you and I put you in a positional stance that mean, means that you're blameless and faultless because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers you. There's a scripture that says that the blood of Jesus Christ continues to cover your sin. That even in your imperfection, as you're trying to, to be what he wants you to be, he covers your faults. You stand before Jesus. So every morning... Or evening, you should say, no matter what it is, I'm putting my faith in Jesus, so I'm standing firm in Jesus. Now, because you can do that, secondly, admit where we struggle. See, there are evil powers pushing your buttons. They know where you struggle. And and when the scripture says, and we read this, when it talked about believing the truth, it really means to stand firm in your faith or it means to open yourself up to full accessibility to Jesus. You can't hide anything. You say, okay, I'm standing in you and, I'm, and no matter what I show you, God's still gonna keep me in the family. He's not kicking me out. So here it is, full accessibility to Jesus. This is who I am. And then you let the scriptures, as you read the scriptures, read you. Say, okay, this is me. That's why the scripture says, Conf- confess your faults one to another that you may be what? Healed. So you can't come here and act like everything is so cool and I am fine and, and then go home and just wrestle with this stuff and understand that you're only as sick as your secrets. So you confess those to Jesus and even close friends you can trust and say, help me get through this. So admit where you struggle. Now, the second part of that is you don't just stop with where admit where we struggle because then we just walk around going, I'm just struggling, I'm just, it's just horrible, I got this, I got this habit I can't get over and, and so God's not going to love me and, and so I'm going to just make it halfway to heaven and, just, and, and you just you mumble and you whine and you just, the scripture doesn't say that. The scripture says you stand in him, now admit it, and then do this, declare where Jesus reigns. Jesus is supreme over your fears, your faults, your failures, he is supreme. So get vulnerable. Let the Holy Scriptures read you. And as you do, as you open it up and say, here I am, okay, I have this problem here. I have a bad temper, or I've, I've had this, this sexual issue, and, or I, and, and you admit it. Then you go to the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are living, they're active, they're not just words, you take who Jesus is that overcomes that weakness and you say, but this is who I am in Jesus. I'm sick, but Jesus is the healer. And every day you apply that. Jesus is the healer. I have bad anger, but Jesus is my peace and Jesus has control. And whatever it is, you start laying that on top and begin begin declaring that's who he is. Because here's what Paul said, in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. Now, this stuff's not just going to happen because you show up on Sunday morning and you sing Kumbaya and, and, and you pray for each other. It's not going to happen. It's going to happen when you every day exercise this faith. When you say, I stand in Jesus today and here is where I am weak, but this is where he is strong and therefore in his, my weakness, his strength is made perfect. I will overcome these powers. They can't stop me. Otherwise, we're a bunch of weak people. We may make it to heaven, but God's going to look at us and go, what, 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 what? I gave you all this stuff. It's like me giving you a car and you walk into Altoona. What's wrong with you? God says, I've given you this stuff. Use it. He says, so I don't want you to drift. I want you to stand firm. So here's what that means. Stand firm means this. It means find a solid foundation and sit down. That's the actual wording of the word stand firm. It actually means to sit down and don't budge because those spirits will lie to you and try to drift you. Your impatience will try to drift you. Your exhaustion in dealing with this issue will try to drift you. Your friends will try to drift you. Those who don't believe in Jesus will try to drift you. Those who are good intentions but say, why you trust in Jesus, you should go do this, they will try to drift you. You have got to stand firm and not be drifted. You see, Erie may be difficult, 
But Jesus is here. His glory is here. And we get to reveal him in that process. The world will see Jesus as we stand firm and not drift. Now understand this. That, that we are so quick for everything. We've got to have our, everything instant. That we want Jesus to reveal himself and do his thing today. We want to go to Benny Hinn and have it done today. We want to go to Lakeland and have it done today. We want to come Thursday, Friday night, which will be a great gathering, but have it done that day. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't work that way. His revelation of who he is to this city will not happen in a day, except on his final return. But it will happen now as we trust him daily and walk through this process daily. And in that trust daily, there is this compounding of faith that suddenly will bring an understanding of who he is to the people around you and even to your own heart. You've got to walk it through. I have a friend I want to bring up, Nancy Yanosko. Nancy, come on up. Nancy came to us one Sunday a couple years ago or a year and a half ago or whatever, and she came down to the front. Come on, Nancy. And she, was, she hadn't been worshiping with us, but she had, she had this real issue. She had been diagnosed by the doctors, and the diagnosis was not good. Come on up a little bit. Let me hold this for you. When you came to see us, is your mic on? Yes, good. Tell us what the doctors had diagnosed for you. Brain cancer stage, going into stage three. Okay, hold that up a little more. Brain cancer going into stage three. Yes. And so you asked that we pray for you. Yes. Okay, we started praying. And we had anointed her with oil, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray. And she went through treatment. One of the issues that you dealt with, in fact, one of, our, one of our intercessors was praying over you and actually gave a prophetic word to you. And you may not remember it, but he said to you, you can trust Jesus and, 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 and not be afraid of the fact that God won't answer your prayer because of your past. Because when you came here, you weren't living for Jesus. You had once. Yes. But you turned your back on him. Right. And you were afraid, weren't you? Yes, I Hold was. Hold that up. Hold that up. Yes, I was. What were you afraid of? Well, I had been saved since I was 18, and I backslid when I was in my early 50s. And, um, and I hurt the Lord, and I know that. And a year before this happened to me with the brain cancer, I was on my way back to the Lord, and then this happened. But I was afraid because I had turned the, my back on the Lord that I loved so much my whole life. And I was afraid he wouldn't forgive me all the way. Did he? And he did. <laughs> and he did. See, here's the deal. Some of you are in here today because you think, yeah. You're here and you, you've, you've messed around with God and he's, he's favored you and then you've run from him and you favored him, uh, favored you and, and you just don't think he's going to do anything for you because you don't deserve it. I want to take you back. Reconciliation means that you stand before God blameless and holy. It's your stance. You're not perfect, but it's your stance. So a year ago, right about now, actually at Christmas, you were one of our cardboard testimonies. Yes. And you came up and you said, brain cancer, February 2009. And then by faith, you said, doing great. God is my healer. But you weren't healed then. Not then. So walking through this process, declaring who he is every day, having prayer as often as you could, and realizing that Jesus had forgiven you, you came up this week and you told me something. Hold that mic really close and tell me, tell these folks what you told me. On December 14th of um, 2010, I went to my surgeon that uh, my husband and I went together and he said that the cancer was gone. Amen. <laughs> and he had said, he goes, he goes, I don't know what you're doing, but he goes, keep on doing it. And I said, it's God. It's God. And, uh, you know, it's been a tough couple of years, you know, but God has delivered me, and he has forgiven me, and that's the main thing. He has forgiven me. And here I am today. I'm living proof of what God can do and what he, how much he loves us. That is so great. So I want to tell you. Go ahead.
for you, it may not be instantaneous. But Jesus still has control. He is supreme. So my question to you is this. Who do you trust? So I was going to dismiss you, but I've got to pause here. Because as we've talked about this, and as Nancy has shared her story, some of you are dealing with issues and people and situations, and, and you need to know it's okay. You need to know he's in control. You need someone to pray with you. So I'm going to ask our elders and their spouses to come back here and just stand here. Come right away. In just a moment, I'm going to dismiss you, and as I do, please go in reverence and, and quietly so that those who want to come here and have prayer. Because you say, I'm dealing with this, this thing in my life, and I, and I want to trust Jesus in this. I, I, I want to declare that he's got control. I'm going to invite you to come, and these folks are going to be around here to pray with you. And some of you have been running from Jesus, and you're just so afraid he's not going to help you. These folks will help you with that. They'll reassure you that his forgiveness is real. Because there is no sin so great he cannot forgive it. And he wants to set you free. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray a blessing over you. And then those who want to come, please come. And these folks are going to pray with you. And those who are going out, do it quietly so that we won't disturb these folks that are having prayer. So now may you receive full recognition of the control that Jesus has around you. May you put your trust in him, even in your darkest moments, and declare that he has control. May your faith be strong. May your vision be clear. And may your answer come to you in a moment of great celebration. And may you never, never, never give up. For he has not given up on you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You can come and be prayed for. Have a good week. See you on Friday night.